Well, I guess we'll get started here. We're in Psalm 10. If you have your Bible or notes or whatever you're using, uh, including the, the notes, little note outline that we shared with you uh, a couple of times. We have dealt with the first 11 verses. Let me real quickly review them. The, um, the psalmist, and it's anonymous, we don't know who wrote it, is talking about uh, a situation, and again, we do not know any of the specifics, but a world filled with oppression and exploitation by the very rich and haughty and proud versus the exploited. And in verses 5 through verse 11, the psalmist uh, lists out the characteristics of this haughty, proud, audacious uh, individuals. It's more than likely one. Their prosperity, their seeming security, their disrespect for authority, and the incredible violence, which you see depicted in 8, 9, 10, and even into 11. And it, it concludes, it meaning this description of this individual or individuals. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Uh, that haughty, arrogant uh, example of what the Greeks call hubris where I can get away with anything. It doesn't matter what I do. I'll never be accountable to God. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. God will never intervene. That kind of spirit has characterized uh, the haughty and the proud throughout history. And it doesn't matter. We are talking about a political ruler, an economic exploiter, the, the old robber barons of the 19th century, or you're talking about just an, an individual who is convinced that he or she is not accountable to God. Anything they do, God will never hold them to account. That's kind of the background. We went over that last week. But verse 12, then the psalmist, um, I, I love how the psalmist puts this. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. It's a cry as the, the arrogant, haughty, proud person of verses 5 through 11, who even said, God will never hold me account. The psalmist is asking for God to intervene. And those words arise, that's a command, lift up, that's a command, it's instruction. Please, God, do this. Intervene. And again, the, the term for God there is Yahweh, Elohim. Those terms, why does the wicked renounce God? Verse 11, or excuse me, verse 13. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Um, why does the psalmist say that? It's almost like he's repeating what the arrogant person said in verse 11. Um, I would suggest that the psalmist is, is asking those rhetorical questions, appealing to God's honor. Why does the wicked renounce God? Why does the wicked say in his heart, you will not call to account? So let's, let's look at that from this vantage point. If God did not deal with injustice, if God did not deal with the haughty and the proud, who in a very real sense you could say are practical atheists, whether they believe in a God or not, God is never going to call me to account. If God would not deal with people like that, would not deal with the political rulers who thumb their nose at God, the economic leaders who exploit and oppress people for personal gain, God's honor 
would be at stake. And that's what he's appealing to. But, first word of verse 14, but you do see. That's a statement of faith. That's a statement of confidence. But you do see. For you know mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. God, God does for them what they cannot do for themselves, the helpless. He is the helper. He is the helper to the fatherless. Now, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm sure you know this, in the ancient world, the most, the most oppressed and disadvantaged people were the widows and especially the orphans. There was absolutely no safety net, no, no any kind of institution that cared for, for the folks that would be in those situations. But God does. God cares. And so he then exhorts God in verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Remove wickedness. Remove this evil from our city, our county, our village. Indeed, let's make it big picture from the world. And so you look at verse 13, 14, and 15, where the psalmist is appealing to God's honor in verse, uh, verse uh, 13, but then that strong statement of faith, which you do see, God is aware. And that's one of the, we can say that by faith, and we can say that as a part of our, of our confidence and trust in God, but there are times when it seems as if God isn't acting. God isn't taking the, taking the hands to help the helpless, to, to be the father, to be the helper to the fatherless, um, and yet He is. And over over time, and certainly by the end of time, with the great white throne judgment, God will remove all wickedness from planet Earth. So, these this, and I know this is a very unpopular thing to say among many evangelicals, but God is interested in social justice. Social justice is a core value of his. He's interested in people that are exploited, people are discriminated against, people are, who are oppressed. God's interested in that. And he will hold people accountable for what they do. And I just was reading not too long ago the book of Amos, one of the minor prophets. And you read the book of Amos, that's what Amos is all about. He's addressing the northern kingdom of Israel. He is addressing those 10 tribes, which were wealthy and were incredibly exploitive and oppressive in how they got their wealth, and God will bring them down. That's exactly what he did. And so, I mean, these kinds of issues are not popular for many people, but you've got to step back and say, is God interested in issues of, of, of injustice and oppression and exploitation? The answer is yes. So then he concludes the psalm, with, again, verse 16, 17, and 18, um, remarkable statements about God, about his attributes, but also that God will vindicate those who are oppressed. So these statements that you see throughout the Psalms, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You, you, you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear 
to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, with this result, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Verse 18 is that ultimate vindication of God. And I'm telling you, man, the only way verse 18 makes sense is if you consider what the Bible talks about in the coming kingdom of Christ, the establishment of his rule on earth, the banishing of all evil, the defeat of all evil, because until Jesus comes back, verse 18 is never going to be completely fulfilled where they may strike terror no more. The reign of Jesus Christ as a benevolent king will be one of perfect justice, perfect righteous, righteousness. There will be no oppression and exploitation. Put it in the way we were talking. Social justice in its purest form will be achieved. And so you have this, this mixture of Psalm uh, 10, this mixture of the sovereignty of God, and his, his providence, he does in, intervene in history, mixed with the justice of God and the compassion and benevolence of God. He is the advocate for the oppressed. He is the advocate for the exploited. And Psalm 10, in a very real sense, is one of the greatest psalms that declares that. All right, any questions about that or comments about that? It's not hard. It's this it can be a little uncomfortable sometimes. All right. Let's shift then. If there aren't questions or comments, let's shift into Psalm 11, which is actually a a short psalm. It's only seven um, seven verses. But I want you to um, think with me for just a moment or two in Matthew chapter 10 verses 16 through 20. Jesus is sending his disciples out, and, and I think by extension, we can apply that to all Christians throughout all ages of the last 2,000 years of the history of the church. He's sending them out to be his representatives, to be his salt and light, and he says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, and, uh, you know, that's obviously the metaphor of, of animals. The sheep are the disciples, and by extension, I think would be you and, and, and would, be, would be I, but in the midst of wolves. Now, in, 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 in those among you who may be familiar with she, uh, shepherding sheep, the most dangerous animal historically was the wolf because they would run in packs, they would go for the weak and kill them. So he's saying, you're going you're gonna to be among enemies throughout your life. You're going to be among enemies who are antagonistic to you, antagonistic to what you teach, antagonistic to what you represent. But he says to them, stand firm in your faith. Do not fear those who have power only over your body, but your fear and devotion should be to me, who has sovereignty and control over your body and your soul. Now, I'm paraphrasing what Jesus said there, because some expositors think that Jesus actually had Psalm 11 in mind when he was saying those words. And so what you have here in Psalm 11 are, are people, I'm going to broaden it to include not only ancient Israel when this was written, but even today. You have people who believe in truth. You have people who, are, who believe in righteousness and the values and virtues and standards of our God living in a world 
let's let's say living in a culture that is an, is opposed to all that not only stands opposed to god but stands opposed to all his values all of his virtues and all of his standards and so this this hostility and this constant pushback to truth this constant pushback to the lord's righteousness is the description of what you see in verses 1 through 3 of anyone whom God sends out to represent him. It doesn't matter whether you're in the first century or the 21st century. And so what the psalmist is, is doing with this psalm is he's saying, hold fast to your faith despite the circumstances. Hold, faith, hold fast to your confidence and trust in me despite everything you see around you. And then verses 4 through 7 will be the reason for that. So let's take a look at these with that kind of brief introduction. Psalm 11, verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. That's a common metaphor throughout the Psalms. God is the, the place of refuge, the place of spiritual and physical protection spiritual and physical security. How can you say to my soul? This is the advice, this is the counsel that some of his friends, the psalmist, has said to him, flee like a bird to your mountain. Go to a safer place. Now again, if you go back to my introductory remarks, the context is you're in a hostile, antagonistic culture. You're taking your refuge in the Lord. You're not running from the responsibilities God has given to you. You're not running from the duty that God has assigned to you. You're not running from the assignment that God has clearly laid out for you. But your friends are saying, run from this. Get out of this culture. Get out of this world. Flee like a bird to your mountain. There's a safer place. Run off, hide in the mountain, and get away from all these people. Get away from all this attack. And then he accentuates this again with what his friends are saying. For Verse 2, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright of heart. And so the depiction in verse 2 is unmitigated physical harm, unmitigated disaster. You are being attacked. Run. You can't possibly fulfill what God is asking you to do. There's too much hostility, too much antagonism. Run. They're attacking you. And then verse 3 is I think one of the most poignant examples that characterizes where we are today in the United States of America in 2021. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, when the author of this Psalm, again, we don't know who it is, anonymous, when he speaks of foundations, what's he talking about? Well, he's not talking about the foundations of a building. Well, I mean, yes, in a sense, you could say that, but it's a metaphor. The foundations of what? The foundations of civilization. The foundations of organized, stable life. 
the foundations of a of an orderly uh, society based on the rule of law, based on agreed upon ethical foundation. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so if I could be very blunt, and I, I hope I don't offend anybody here, if I can be very blunt, I could argue, I could make a strong case that the ethical foundations of American civilization have crumbled. There is no longer in the United States of America, in our culture and our civilization, there's no longer a consensus, an agreed upon consensus on what is right and what is wrong. There is no longer an agreed upon consensus of what the ethical boundaries for life are. Those boundaries are constantly in flux. And so whether you're talking about the, again, I'm going to be specific here, but I don't know how else to illustrate it. If you're talking about the, the sexual and gender bound, boundaries of society, I think you all would agree they are utterly fluid. We now live in a civilization where gender, which is it's almost unimaginable, but gender is now a fluid concept. It used to be discussed only in biological terms. It is no longer discussed only in biological terms. Gender is a concept that is anchored now in you, the autonomous individual. So gender identity is fluid when it comes to sexual activity. What are the boundaries to acceptable sexual activity in American civilization? Well, they're, they're almost limitless. I mean, we still are a civilization that is, a, is antagonistic to the act of rape. But think, what, what else? Well, pedophilia, but anything else? Not much. There, there's, there's hardly any boundaries to sexual activity. The gender issue, and I mean, I'm just saying, let alone then the whole matter of ethical issues of what is right and wrong that's accepted as right and wrong. We we are living in a civilization where what verse three is stating fits American civilization today. If foundations are destroyed, what are the righteous to do? Flee, run to the mountain. That's what the advice he's getting in verse two. In the end of verse 1 and verse 2, flee, run from it. Go up on a mountain and just wait. That is not what God wants us to do, in my opinion. But what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 11 fits with where we are today. And so the psalmist turns from this seemingly desperate situation where there's no ethical seemingly legal foundation for civilization in an order, orderly, stable civilization. Verses 4, 5, and 6, you turn to your view of God. You turn to the God who is your refuge, verse 1a of this psalm. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Stop there for just a minute. The psalmist is affirming the bedrock theological truth of our faith. We serve a sovereign God. We serve a God who is enthroned. The Lord reigns. 
His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. Because he's sovereign, and again, the author is using figures of speech here. God doesn't have eyes. God doesn't have eyelids. He's a spirit. But his eyes, his eyelids, most expositors understand that to mean if you're in a, like it is today, a very intense day of, of sunlight, sometimes you have to squint a little bit because that light is so much in order to see clearly. And so it's almost like no matter what, no matter what humans do, God sees. Takes you back to the previous song. God sees, and God doesn't miss anything. And so this sovereignty of God that he's attesting to in the first part of verse 4 is added. He's not an absentee landlord. He's not a God who creates and sovereignly directs and then leaves. The end of verse 4 is an, a dimension of God's providence. He's not only sovereign, he's providentially involved. There is a careful and close scrutiny of what happens in civilizations. So verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous. Okay, before we look at the second half of verse 5, what does that mean, the Lord tests the righteous? We, we ask that rhetorical question at the end of verse 3, what do the righteous do? when the ethical foundations of civilization are collapsing. Well, the Lord tests the righteousness. He tests the righteous who are his. He tests them whether they're people of fear or people of faith, whether people who are anxiety-ridden or people of trust and confidence in him. And in the midst of a collapsing civilization, that is the test of the righteous. Do you trust me? Or do you trust the circumstances that you see all around you? And see, that's kind, of, that's kind of where we're at right now in the United States. Many of the foundation stones are cracking and crumbling. And the structures of our civilization are beginning to fall apart. What do we do? Fix on those things or fix on the Lord? Because any student of history knows this. Civilizations, cultures, and nations don't last. God does. And so, in that sense, the second part of verse 5 becomes even more poignant. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. If he sees with that careful and close scrutiny that's affirmed at the end of verse 4, then the wicked and those who love violence will be called to account. And verse 6 is a statement of judgment. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fear and fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. And the cup is a metaphor in the Old Testament and the New Testament of judgment, the cup of God's wrath. And so verse 6 is affirming God doesn't miss anything. God, God isn't missing what they're doing. The cracking of civilization's foundation are not missed by God, and he will hold accountable. He will hold accountable those who have caused it. And those, those figures like fire and sulfur and scorching wind are throughout these scriptures, especially throughout the Old Testament, the means by which God judges. 
And then verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The uphold, the upright shall behold his face. And so verse 7 becomes then the source of our hope shall behold his face. That's your hope and my hope in 2021. My hope is centered in Jesus. Your hope is centered in Jesus. His return. He said he's going he's to come back for us. He made that promise to us in John 14. And when we, when we see him fulfill that promise in the words of the scriptures, we will see him face to face. So this, this short little psalm, it's just seven verses, this short little psalm is packed with relevance for you and me today as we watch foundation stones and pillars of, of, of civilized life beginning to crack and collapse. What do we do? Well, he's saying, do one thing, keep your focus on me. And it's, the, it's that hope that he is going to take care of us. He will vindicate the righteous. He will take care of the evil. He will take care of the and I'll use examples from history, the Benito Mussolini's and the Joseph Stalin's of history. God will take care of them, but he'll also take care of, of those who are, who are cracking the ethical foundations of, of, civilized, of civilized life. I mean, it, it's just an, it's an overwhelming, big-picture view of God that is important for us. And I, I go back to what the Lord Jesus said there in Matthew chapter 10 as he sent the disciples out. You are sheep in the midst of wolves. And in 2021, that is an appropriate, that is appropriate figure of speech for each one of us. God is, God is sending us into a culture and a civilization that is not receptive to the truth, is antagonistic to the truth. And if these foundations are cracking, what do we do? All right, questions or comments about that? Jim, I had a couple of um, questions here. First of all, a couple comments. Um, the uh, first part of testify is test. And so when, when we are put under pressure uh, as <clears throat> in Jesus Christ in this world, um, that we, he will allow us to testify about what we believe. That's an opportunity for us. And then um, I think of Genesis 1 and 2, where he says he created man and then woman. And then you made a comment earlier regarding uh, standing firm. We know why we stand firm. Do though evildoers equally know why they stand and do what they do? Do they know the source of that? Thank you. Um, I'm not quite sure how to answer that question. Uh, did they know the source of it? Uh, I, I don't, I doubt it. <laughs> deceiving and being Bible, deceived. The Bible tells us that the source of evil and deception and lies is Satan. I mean, Jesus says he's the father of lies. His life been a lie from the beginning, partially what Christ says. And then, of course, I think the Bible in its big picture from Genesis 3 on helps us to see that. But I, I'm, I'm rather skeptical that 
some of the people I was using as illustrations and the whole basic theme of Psalm 11 that the wicked really <laughs> understand where the source of it is. In, 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 in most cases, and that's certainly true in 2021, um, the, the behavior of people and the ethical decision-making that goes on is driven by a sense of personal autonomy and uh, I am the master of my own ship. I'm the Lord of my own life. I'm choosing to do what I, whatever I want to do for me, period. And I don't particularly care about anything else or anyone else. And that drive for personal autonomy, which I do believe is sourced in Satan, but that drive for personal autonomy fits with that little refrain in the book of Judges. Every man was doing what is right in his own eyes. So it, you think you're serving yourself, but the source of all of this, and that's the whole point from Genesis 3 on, Satan is leading a rebellion against God, and the question of Genesis 3 is, will the human race join that rebellion? And Genesis 3 answers the question, yes. And the over 5,000 years of recorded history have just been mountain upon mountain upon mountain of evidence of the, humanity, of the human race's rebellion against God in every sense. And to me, just practically speaking, the greatest evidence of rebellion against God is what the psalmist says in verse 3. If the foundations of civilization are destroyed, what do you do? And that autonomy, every man doing what is right in his own eyes, is what destroys the ethical foundation of any organized civilization. And so, I mean, it's... It, it, to me, it's almost unbelievable that the person who doesn't know Christ doesn't recognize what's going on, <laughs> that they don't see the outworkings of this, this drive for personal autonomy. But until and unless they come under the conviction of God's Spirit, they're not going to see it. So anyway, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's kind of my response. It looks like somebody else had somebody else's light went on. So, I, oh no, all right. Well, then if not, I'm going to move into Psalm 12. Man, we're making a lot of progress here. Psalm 12 is another short psalm. If you're looking at your notes, I entitled this "Truth in a World of Deception." So, in a sense, 10, 11, and 12 they go together perfectly which is, I think, the reason why they are in the order they're in. Now, this psalm, if you look at the superscription, this psalm is identified as a psalm of David. As with most cases, there are a few exceptions, but with most cases, we do not know the specific circumstance of, of David's writing this psalm. We, we just don't know. And so what you see here, and that's why I entitled it uh, Truth in a World of Deception, David is writing about, and he's the king, and he's observing things and uh, watching things that are happening in his kingdom, and what he sees all around him is deceit, deception, lying, and it's, I'm sure, at both a huge macro level and perhaps in a small way. But in a world of deception and lies and duplicity and deceit, what do you do? David says in verses 1 through 4, you can only turn to the Lord. Save, O Lord, verse 1 reads, 
the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Now that is perhaps a statement of a bit of hyperbole, hyperbole's exaggerated language. But David is crying out for God's deliverance. And so when he says, save, O Yahweh, that, that doesn't, it can be, but I don't think so. It doesn't mean I'm looking to be justified, God. I, I need your personal. He's talking about delivering, delivering him, delivering his kingdom from a world and culture of deception and lies and deceit. And so he makes this extraordinary statement. It would seem that it's exaggerated. For the faithful vanished from among the children of men. I don't see any faithful people anywhere. Now, does he mean in his whole kingdom? And then he continues in verse 2, everyone, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. Lord, it's a culture of deceit. It's a culture of, of dishonor. There's dishonesty with flattering lips and a double heart. They speak. Flattering lips, you know, that's a, kind of a smoothness of language. You make people feel good and then you nail them. A double heart, double dealing, double mindedness, they speak. There's not a single minded pursuit of truth. It's a double-minded, double heart. It means that the person flits from being partially true to equally lying and being deceptive. And so David then asks, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue, we will prevail and our lips are with us. Who is master over us? And so you see what we've seen in other parts of the Psalms, both 10 and 11. Who is master over us? We are the masters of our own dynamic. We're not accountable to God. And so our smooth talk, our double-hearted speech, our duplicitous, deceptive lying, they're hubris. I love that Greek term. They're hubris that arrogant, defiant pride is characteristic of their boasting, their lying, their deception. And so David is talking about, in his kingdom, presumably, there's fraud, there's deception, there's deceit, there's lying. And even though it's hyperbole, in verse, end of verse 1 and in, in verse 2, Lord, I see it everywhere. I see it everywhere in my kingdom. And then verse 5, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, groan, I will now rise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. He would be the oppressed, the plundered. So verse 5, again, is God is answering the prayer. The prayer was, save, O Lord, deliver us. Verse 5, the Lord answers. And then David makes this incredibly important contrast between the lying and deceit in verse 1, 2, 3, and 4 with the Lord. What's he like? Verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, 
purified seven times. So David is saying, in contrast to the lies and deceit and deception I see all around, I'm driven to an attribute of my God. When he speaks, his words are pure. And to enhance that word pure, and that's the right translation for that Hebrew word, to, to enhance the meaning of that word pure, he goes to the metallurgical in industry. And you find a, a piece of ore, and you want to get the pure silver. So you put it under immense heat. And in this case, seven times it's purified. And as you know, in the Bible, seven is often the number of perfection, a number of completion. So the Lord's words are like silver that's been purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. And so in this contemptible, vile, immoral society, where do you go? To the truth of the Lord. His words are pure. His words are true. So as we think about this applicationally, what, what does that mean for us? Well, truth is not a major characteristic of modern world of postmodern living. I can show you academic publications that put the word truth in quotation marks. Truth is now regarded as relative. It depends on the situation. There's no such thing as absolute truth. And so the consequence of that is if you believe that, then you build your interpersonal relationships, you build your culture, you build your civilization, you build your entertainment, you build your, your political order around half-truths, deception, deceit, and lying. What did the righteous person do in a situation like that? You go to the Lord. You go to his word. What does David say? Verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. They're not diluted. They're not deceptive. They're not deceitful. They're pure. You can trust them. And so for you men who are in this Bible class, that is applicable to you and me. We are trying each week to drench our minds and our hearts with the pure words of God, because his word is true and pure and trustworthy and dependable. And as I said in response to, um, I think it was Fred's question, the Bible identifies Satan as a liar from the beginning, the father of all lies. And so the further our civilization gets from the truthfulness and purity and dependability of God's word, the more and more we get into the vice of satanic deception and satanic deceit. I see it all around me. I see it everywhere in our culture. That is, people have chosen to abandon the truthfulness of God's word, abandon his values and virtues and standards. They're buying in to that which is deceitful, that which distorts, that which lies. And for you and me, our only source of true truth, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, 
of true truth is God's word. And so I, this is why, again, for you and me engaged in a Bible class like this and the other things you might do during the week, even in your church, to see that time in God's word as a value, you're saturating your mind, your thought life, your heart with the true things of the true God who is trustworthy and his view of truth is absolute. And so Psalm 12, again, it's not hard to figure out what he's doing. It's not difficult to figure out what he's saying. And so it's just one of the most, I think, one of the most profoundly helpful things in the 21st century for each one of us. All right. <laughs> Other question. <laughs> um, as we go back to the church and, and, the, and study scripture as we do at home, and, and um, how important... Um, that seems to me to be very important in sharing and then caring for others that we see in our daily lives that are without Christ as Savior. And I guess to bear witness and then leave the results, as, as we've said many times, up to the Lord but we have to feel like, and I would like to encourage the men some, somehow through your words, Jim, that that does matter, that we don't do it unto ourselves alone, but we do it for the purpose of bearing witness to others so that they may also come to an understanding of Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's, I, I don't know how else to say what you're saying other to affirm, affirm what you're saying is, is true. I think if I can take Psalm 10, Tom, Psalm 11, and Psalm 12 together, because basically we covered all three of those Psalms this morning. Uh, if I can take all three of those together, this is helping us to understand, I believe, some of the things that Jesus said to his disciples and therefore to us, because we are his disciples. I'm sending you out into the world to be my salt and to be my light. And that's in Matthew 5, right after the Beatitudes. But when he says something like that, or you say, you look at what I said earlier when we were talking about another psalm in, in, in Matthew chapter 10, when he sends his disciples out, he says, I'm sending you out a sheep in the middle of wolves. And then when you read from what we just read here in Psalm 12, a world of deceit and deception and lying we are the only ones that have the truth. That's not a statement of arrogance. You, some people would say you're being very arrogant, but I think we represent truth because God's word is truth, and we just read God's word is pure. So th therefore, our assignment from the Lord Jesus, and, and that's just in terms of your vocation, what you do to earn your living, it's not so much that. It, it can and does involve that, but it's, it's everything you do we are the, someone one time said, we are the only Bible some people will read. And what they meant by that is when, a, when an unbeliever sees how we live, sees our lives, sees our ethical standards, sees our values and virtues, we stand out. <laughs> we are different. And therefore, that gives a fantastic opportunity for those of us who know Jesus and love him and love his word to represent him. 
we should be able to show by our lifestyle and show by what we do and say what truth really looks like. We should be able to show what, what a sound, strong marriage and family looks like. Because where do you go if you don't know the Lord for that? Where, where are the models? Where, where's the framework? And so when you put Psalm 10, 11, and 12, it's a way in which, of think, a way in which we can think about the Lord's assignment, where, you're, where his salt and his light. And I want to, let me unpack that just one step further. I've said this before, but maybe you don't remember it or you weren't here when I said it. When Jesus uses those terms, it's metaphor, salt and light, you have to think of those in the ancient world. When he says you're the salt of the earth, you and I think of salt as something that we do to enhance the flavor of a good thick Omaha steak. You shake it with salt. That's not how the typical person in the ancient world looked at it. Some did use salt to enhance the flavor of their food, but for the most part, salt in the ancient world was an incredibly valuable commodity because it was a preservative. You packed your meat in salt. You packed some of the, the vegetables and things that quickly spoil in salt. That preserves it. It prevents bacteria from destroying it. So if that's what Jesus meant, that means that you and I are the preservative. Wherever we are in a culture of civilization, we are preserving it from further decline. And so the more Christians there are, the greater that impact on culture and society becomes. That's why it's advantageous to study American history from that perspective. Because the, 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 the number of tr true Christians in American civilization in various parts of our history has been very, very high. And so that preservative function, you see the evidence of it. Because as Chuck Colson used to say before he died, if you want to change culture, you change people. People then change culture. And if there are no Christians left, then what's going to happen to culture? The downward spiral will accelerate. And then secondly, light. Light, and this is true, whether in the ancient world or in the 21st century today, light exposes darkness for what it is. And when you turn on the light, it exposes the dark. You, you can see. If you're in darkness, you can't see where you're going. You can't see anything around you. You can't understand and have perception accurately about anything. Turn on the light. <gasps> now I see. And so where the light, whereby how we live and what we say, we expose darkness for what it is. And so Psalm 10, Psalm 11, and Psalm 12 are in effect saying to us, you are salt and you're light in this kind of a culture. What's it going to look like? And so it's, we are in the, we're in the business of exposing deceit and falseness for what it is. By hammering people over our, their heads with our Bibles? Well, that's probably not the most effective tool of evangelism. But how we live, and as opportunity comes, what we say, we expose. And I'm sure this has happened to you guys many times, happened to me many, many times. You expose the darkness in someone's life for what it is, and they begin to probe and ask and seek help because their life is a life of darkness. And so these psalms that were written thou several thousand years ago 
they're almost like they were written yesterday, describing what, when the foundations of civilization crack and begin to crumble, what do you do? When you live in a society where deceit, where, where dishonesty, and where you have the, 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 the duplicity of, of people all around you, what do you do? Well, I, I'm just, I'm saying the same thing over and over again. So these Psalms fit perfectly, and that's how I've used them in the past, fit perfectly with what Christ said when he charged us to be salt and light. Well, that was a really long, I, who, did somebody ask that question? I can't even remember how this got started, but I launched on this. Any other questions or comments before we, we look at the last song? I will send this out to uh, uh, Joel and the guys uh, between now and our next meeting. We're going to begin a study of the book of Ephesians. We, I don't think we'll quite get done with Psalm 13, but that's our next book. And we'll send you out the notes and all that stuff so you'll have time to look at it if you want. Well, if there are any other questions, let's look at Psalm 13. That's the last one in this brief uh, little um, collection of Psalms that I thought we'd study between the last couple Old Testament books and our study of the book of Ephesians. Now, if you're looking at your outline or any, however you organize this, I entitled Psalm 13, The Cry of the Afflicted. And um, that is a Psalm of David, and the affliction can be physical affliction, uh, you know, disease or accidents or whatever, but it can be spiritual affliction. It can be the attacks of the evil one. The psalmist, uh, the psalm superscription says it's a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That is a poignant series of rhetorical questions. It flies in the face of what we've just been reading about in Psalm 10, 11, and 12. And so the psalmist is asking God a question. Oh God, how long will you continue to forget me? Because in a very real sense, to paraphrase it, that's exactly what he's saying. It seems to me, God, as if you forgot me. It seems to me, God, that I no longer have your favor. When he uses that phrase, hide your face, I no longer have your favor. Lord, what's, what's wrong? And so it's an, an anguished cry. And this is one of the this is one of the dimensions of a believer's life that is real. How do I deal with the seeming silence of God? Now, if everything we've read in Psalm 10, 11, and 12 is true, then God has not abandoned you, assuming you're a believer. God has, God has not refused to hear you, but the silence of God is definite. The silence of God is a test of our faith. The silence of God is bewildering. The silence of God sows doubt. The silence of God 
creates, or I should say can create, a distorted or perverted image of God. I thought you cared about me. I thought I was the apple of your eye, one of the metaphors in the Psalms that God uses of his people. I, I thought, in the words of Max Licato, you had a picture of me on your refrigerator. I thought you knew my name. I mean, all of those questions just flow out of this. The silence of God is difficult for the believer sometimes to process. The psalmist goes on. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long must I take counsel of my soul? The frustration, the grief, my plans aren't working. What I thought was right isn't working. The counsel in my soul, the counsel in my soul, what I thought was the right thing to do, what seemed like the right thing. How long must I take counsel? I'm questioning the frustration, the grief. It's falling apart and have sorrow in my heart all the day. The emotional and spiritual sadness, it's immobilizing. It's the silence of God leads to questioning, leads to doubt, leads to emotional and spiritual upheaval. It's immobilizing. That's what the psalmist does. And we will never do this, of course, but if we were honest and we had the time and we'd go around the table, so to speak, I would believe that at some point in every one of your lives, you've experienced something like this. Where no matter what is happening, as you cry out to God, he just seems to be silent. He does not seem to be answering. And the what you had thought was the right thing to do, isn't, I'm not talking about a, a, a choice of sin versus non-sin, but just a path that you're following, a direction you've taken, that your counsel, everything you did seemed to be wise, and it's falling apart. Jim, I have, another, that, Jim I have another way to say that, I think. Yeah. How long must I be alone with my thoughts? There you go. That's a, that's a great way to paraphrase that, Woody. Because all you have now is your own thoughts. <laughs> And so, I mean, this is, a, I, I mean, I, I, again, I, I'm almost positive every one of you has been there. I've been there in my life. And so David is saying words, articulating words in, in poetry, because that's what this is, in ways, of, oh, I know what he means by that. Oh, I know exactly what he means by that. And then he adds one final rhetorical question. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? My enemy is exercising dominion over my life. Now, enemy there can mean a lot of things. Your arch enemy is Satan and all his minions. It could mean that. Your enemy could be yourself. You know, the Bible speaks of our flesh, which is our enemy. It could be the world system that is our enemy. It could be an individual person or a group of individuals. David doesn't specify any of that. But in this catatonic state that he's describing here, 
it seems as if the enemy is winning. And David is saying in these piercing, penetrating words, where are you, God? Your silence is destroying me. So then David, how much time do we have here? Let, let me do one verse here. Look at verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, O Yahweh my Elohim. That's the covenant language of ancient Israel. It's in Deuteronomy 6.4. It's in the great statements of their faith. Yahweh is my Elohim. Yahweh, the self-existent, self-sufficient, great I am of the universe, is my God. And this, the, the, the people of Israel did that over and over again. That's the covenant language. We have the relationship. My Elohim, my God, is Yahweh. So consider and answer me. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Look closely at my dilemma. Look closely at my situation. Lift, lift me up, God, because I am going to die from this. This is life-threatening. This is a serious life-threatening situation. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. They're, they, they, they are destroying him. So he's asking God to look with favor. Psalm 13 is, uh, at least the superscription says, it's a psalm of David. Uh, as with so many uh, of his psalms, he wrote about 70, 71, 72 psalms in the Psalter. We don't know the exact circumstance. Uh, some suggest, because of the nature of the, the language, that uh, it is during the rebellion of his son Absalom, when Absalom, his son, rebelled against David and actually led a very significant rebellion. Uh, and for a period of time, Absalom's actually ruling the kingdom. But we're not sure, so it doesn't really matter to try to speculate. But it's a lament. Uh, he is, uh, he, David, is devastated. And he's crying out to God. And we uh, read those verses last week. We'll read them again. Verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? That's the whole series of rhetorical questions there that do um, indicate a, a, a very, very traumatic situation for David, uh, a very difficult situation. And compounding the difficulty of the affliction and the situation is the silence of God. And uh, as we talked a little bit last week, that is a, a fairly normal thing you see in the Psalms. And I would suspect in each one of your lives over the life of your walk with the Lord, you're praying about something, you're in a very difficult situation, and God does not seem to be answering uh, at least the way we think he should answer in the time frame he should answer. So those questions, again, we covered that last week, those questions really are penetrating because they really identify the heart of a saint who is grieving, who's afflicted, and the silence of God 
compounds that agony, that lament, that difficulty. Then verse three through and four, which is kind of where we left off last year, uh, last week, David writes, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. So he's asking, and, and actually it's a, it's a plea. He's pleading with God. Look closely at my dilemma and your silence. And then I want you to observe how he addresses God. And I'm going to use the Hebrew here, O Yahweh, my Elohim. And we've, you've heard me use those before, so I'm sure that's not new. But when you see the word Lord in higher case, uppercase, capitals, that's Yahweh. And God, almost always in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, is Elohim. So this is the covenant language. This is the language of the covenant. David is, again, claiming that unique unconditional, unilateral covenant relationship with God based on the Abrahamic covenant. He knows his God. He knows what his God, his God is like. He knows the character of his God. So in it, crying out to him in all of the nature of the afflictions and the silence of God, he appeals to the covenant. And so he says, it's kind of, again, this flowerly language of the Hebrew, lift up my eyes. What does he mean by that? Lift up my eyes. Well, he's so downtrodden. Help me, Lord, to look at you. Now, I don't mean literally, because you can't see God, God's spirit, but lift up my eyes so that I can focus on you, not my circumstances. Lift up my eyes, God, so I can focus on what I know about you, your attributes. You're my covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Let me give my focus to you. Let me, let me, it's almost like, let me stare at you, is the language. So it's, it's, it's a fabulous prayer in the sense that, and every one of us has been there, to get our eyes and our minds and our thoughts and our concentration off the circumstances and to get our mind and our eyes and our concentration, our thoughts on God. He's a God who keeps his promises. He's a God who promised to never leave us, forsake us. So that's the language. It's flowery, figurative language, but it's, it's quite marvelous. And he says that, Lord, I've got to keep my focus on you. Last, I look, there are three I read from the ESV translation, three verbs, lest, 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 lest sleep, I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So he's focused on, Lord, I've got to keep my focus on you. I've got to see you in all this. And it's so serious, he's looking at the potential of dying from this is the sleep of death, which is kind of all over the Bible. It's a very serious situation. So, Lord, I've got to keep my focus on you. And, and secondly, if I, if I lose my focus on you, my enemies are going to prevail over me. And if I lose my focus on you, they're going to rejoice and mock and taunt me because they see I'm shaken. My faith is shaken. So it's, it's, a, it's a cry out to the Lord but it's, it's a cry out to the Lord based on his theology, his understanding, his knowledge, and his intimacy with God. 
because he, whatever this is specifically is, if it is the rebellion of Absalom, that was a very difficult time in his life, or whatever it was, it's so serious, the only thing he can do is turn to God. And so the, the concluding part, it's a very short psalm, verse 5 and 6, what's the first word of verse 5? But it's that word of strong contrast, but. Now here, here is a fantastic affirmation of faith. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. Now, what's the Hebrew for steadfast love? Chesed. Chesed. My wife's in the kitchen. She just answered it. I was going to say, my wife can't answer it, but my students can't answer it. That's terrible. Thank you, Fred, for redeeming the class. I want to give my wife a star for her participation, but she's not in the class. You are. But anyway, thank you, Fred. Yes, it's chesed. And that we've talked about that many, many. I even I one time recommended a book to Russ about it. But it's a, it's a great, powerful theological certainty that just permeates the Old Testament. Loyal covenant love of God. And it takes you back to the covenant name that he used in verse 3. But, I mean, that's, he knows his God. And despite these horrible circumstances that he's in, whatever they exactly are, He's learned in the past, he knows for the present, and he knows with certainty for the future to trust in a God of covenant love, loyal love, steadfast love. He's a God who always keeps his promises. So he can conclude, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Now, that could be I mean, his salvation in terms of his salvation, where he has eternal life and promise to be with God forever. Or he can, because that's what that word can mean as well, just deliverance from the extremely difficult situation that he's in. I, I kind of think that's really what he means. Because his relationship with God is a, a relationship, let's use an old New Testament term, Paul's term, of justification. He's already experienced that many, many years ago. So he's, he's asking the Lord to deliver him, and he has the confidence that God will. I will say, so he ends, he ends the psalm with a triumph. It's a triumphant declaration. I will sing to Yahweh, to the Lord. Why? Because he has dealt bountifully with me. And that little phrase, bountifully with me, is covenant language in the, New Te in the Old Testament. I mean, it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean, and probably in this case doesn't mean, material bounty, good harvest, good crops. He's talking about the blessings of God's grace, the blessings of God's covenant love. It's bountiful. And that Hebrew word can mean just kind of overflowing the banks of like a river or over, overflowing the the containers that can uh, held the barley or the wheat in, in harvest time. But he's, I don't think he's necessarily talking about the material blessing, just the gracious blessings of a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. So you just see he's circling back, starts the psalm with despair. He feels abandoned by God. He, he starts the, the psalm with these rhetorical questions that, that indicate a very desperate situation. He's in the middle of the psalm where he now begins to turn in the circle back to God from the despair 
Remember, who is my God? Ah, he's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Oh, Yahweh, my Elohim. Lord, enable me to get my eyes on you, not my circumstances. And then he's, he's completing the circle. I have trusted in your chesed, your steadfast love. So it's a, it's a fantastic summary of the ups and downs of doing life. There are, the, there are the incredible valleys of despair. It is, it is wrong for us to think. It is wrong for us to tell young believers, you're never going to experience a downtime. It's always going to be joy and uplift with God. That's, you're almost telling somebody a lie. That is not what's going to happen. Life is hard. You still live in a fallen, broken world. You're still struggling with your sin. Your position is secure. Your identity is secure. Who you are is secure. But life is hard. And so we're going to have these ups and downs. But I, that's why I love the Psalms. Because every Psalm, I think there's only one exception, but every Psalm comes back full circle, focusing on God. I don't have anything else to hope in. I don't have anything else to trust in except my God, the God of the covenant, who will deliver me either now in space-time history or in the future when I go to be with him. So it's, it's just a fantastic summary of confident faith, even in the midst of dismal, despairing situations in doing life. All right. I wish we could have got that done last week, but we ran out of time. It's, it's really a, it's a tremendous summary of what I think you and I will experience, but also the triumph of keeping our focus on God and not on the circumstances. And that's certainly what David is saying here. Any final questions or thoughts about Psalm 13 before we leave it? Yes, sir, Fred. Um, in verse 6, then, the I will sing, is that that uh, present perfect type of tense? I'm sorry, which one are you, are you folks, what verse are you in? 6, verse 6. Verse 6. I will sing, is that the, the present perfect type of tense? Oh, uh, that's really a great question. I um, I didn't look at the Hebrew uh, I did a couple weeks ago. I don't remember. My guess, Fred, would be that it is. That's my guess, that it is. But I, I'm sorry, I can't with certainty say that it is. I didn't check that out before before the class this week. I just forgot. I S-H-I-Y-R is the I will sing. Now, that's then not necessarily in the, the present perfect. It's just the present. It's it's a it's a future. It's a future, future tense. tense. It's like I intend to sing. It, it's kind of that's the thought. I intend to sing, um, but I, I don't think it's it, that's that suffix that uh, Russ just read. That verb with the suffix that it has is not the perfect tense. So it's it's a future. It's an intentional. I intend to sing to the Lord. So instead of Wallowing in my circumstances, my trust, verse 5, leads to my intent to sing. Okay, that's a good question. Sorry, I, I couldn't be definitive at first. Anything uh, else? Great yeah, Jim, uh, Jim, I had a question regarding uh, David's view as uh, God's uh, anointed one to be king in light of the circumstances uh, that he he's dealing uh, with. 
Uh, and then uh, David's view, uh, was he aware of his lineage uh, to the King, uh, King Jesus at that time? Well, um, not, not Jesus specifically, but I mean, the answer to your question is yes, he understood, because that's the Davidic covenant which is summarized 2 Samuel 7, 16 is the succinct summary of it, an eternal throne, an eternal dynasty, an eternal kingdom. So he, he was aware and was very clear that coming from him would be the Messiah. Now, I mean, it sounded to me like your question was very specific. Did he know about Jesus? Well, the answer to that is no, but did he understand that from him would come, his lineage would come, the Messiah? Absolutely. That's what the Davidic covenant is all about. Absolutely. Thank you. So I'm going to pray and let you go here. Father, we're grateful for the Psalms. There, there isn't a lot of, of difficulty with these Psalms, Psalm 10, 11, and 12, but they're profound. Because I think we can all identify, this is kind of what I see going on around me. And even Psalm 13, which we didn't quite finish, the, the seeming silence of you is devastating and, and difficult and bewildering. But the end of the psalm is triumphant faith, and that's what we're working on. Lord, help us to be men of triumphant faith, who love you and, and serve you, who understand, using the thoughts of Psalm 10, 11, and 12, what it means to be your salt, to be your light. Lord, you've given us a huge assignment to represent you. How we live our lives, how we act, how we respond is evidence of our faith and trust in you. The words that we say is evidence of our trust in you. Help us to be men in word and deed that honor you and are indeed your salt and light. We live in a society, a culture, where the, the evidence of crumbling is all around us, but we don't respond with fear, we respond with faith. For we represent you in this very difficult time. So, Lord, I commend each guy to you. Be with them, watch over them, uh, take care of them. May their health remain strong, and may they remain strong in their faith. I commit them to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank right, you, Jim. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm. Thank Thanks you, gentlemen. Bye-bye. Be safe.